one of the, uh, one of the most important discipleship questions that you can deal with is um, the issue of stewardship. Now, the, the problem is the minute you mention that word, there's an image that pops into your mind. You know, you start seeing dollar signs. You think that's what you're talking about. And uh, the truth is, money is something that God entrusts to us that is a very important indicator. I mean, you can tell, you can tell a lot about somebody by what they spend their money on. Um, I don't want to minimize the importance of financial stewardship. Uh, I think we would all agree that that is important. But the question that I have for you this morning as we continue through uh, this kind of discipleship series is what kind of steward are you of the gospel? I mean, listen, money is an important thing God has entrusted you with. God has also entrusted you with the gospel. How are you stewarding that? That's not a question I hear a lot of people asking. As a matter of fact, I think the better you do stewarding your dollars, perhaps the less you think you need to steward the gospel. Here's another way that we've asked the question that has meant a lot to us as we think about how do we encourage um, Christians to be well-rounded Christians that don't just give well, but share well. And the question is this, who is closer to Christ because they are close to you? Think about that. Who is closer to Christ because God in his sovereignty has made you their neighbor? Who's closer to Christ because they work right next to you in the very next cubicle? Particle board separating you. Who is closer to Christ because when the teacher assigned the seats for classes, they didn't know that you were a believer, but God did. Who is closer to Christ because they're close to you? Here's, here's the answer. It better be somebody, right? It better be somebody. And in a, in a strange way, we're going to take a parable, a story that Jesus told, and we're going to turn it around in, in a different sense. And I, I will warn you, um, through a, a whole week's worth of research, I have now found someone who has agreed with me in exactly the way I'm going to say things this morning. Um, and and it, it, it requires a little bit of audacity to say, all right, I've read 15 commentaries this week. And, and they're all wrong, I'm right? I don't think they would disagree with what I'm going to say. But I'm going to turn something around here that I think makes more explicit uh, something that we all assume, okay? We all make assumptions. We all believe certain things. And so we're going to be looking at the parable of the talents. And uh, while we will make application to financial stewardship, that's not going to be the chief most um, application that we're going to make today. So Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, we, we open up with a story about a rich man who entrusts portions of his riches with his servants. And we see a very um, important and foundational principle to start off this story. And the first one, the first principle is this, that life, life is all about faithfully using what God has entrusted to us. Now, I love the way that we say that. Because uh, you do not have to be a person of faith to understand that God has entrusted something to you. I mean, let's just be honest. You didn't create yourself. You didn't create the oxygen that you're breathing. You didn't create your brain, your intellect. If you actually earn an income, you didn't create your abilities. You may have developed them. But everything that you have 
is an endowment that God has given to you. So whether you are a person of faith or not, you have still been entrusted with something that God has given to you. And we're going to bounce back and forth between ancient story and modern day application. But the very first point that we're going to make is that life is about faithfully using what God has entrusted to us to use. Look at verses 14 and 15. It'll be on the screen behind me. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. Well, the very first question is, what is this guy handing out? I've never heard of a talent. Is this like, you know, America's got talent? What is this? Well, it's a confusing question because a talent um, was not predominantly known as a monetary unit. It was known as a measurement of weight. So, you know, you remember middle school, you start weighing things on the scales and trying to figure out all right, how much does a piece of paper weigh? You know, what's, what, how many grams is that? Um, a talent was a, a measurement of weight. And uh, I believe it depend, different nations had different weights. Um, but I think the, the Greek talent was about 75 pounds. Um, later, that mass of uh, weight, if you had 75 pounds of gold, what would, that, what would that amount to monetarily? And I can't tell you specifically, here's a dollar amount. You know, it'd be like one trillion dollars. You know, I, 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 can't, I can't tell you that. But I can say that a talent was roughly equivalent to 20 years worth of salary. So if you um, take $50,000, which is the average uh, individual income in Rock Hill, you multiply that by 20 years, that's a lot of money. And so this guy is handing out talents. Five to one guy, two to another, one to the last guy. Eight talents, each talent representing 20 years worth of labor. These servants get handed more money than they will ever make in their entire life. And here's what's awesome. The master gives to each one of his servants, um, every single one of them gets something. It's the same in life. God gives something to everyone. No, it's, not, it's not fully distributed equally, right? Some people get really upset. They're like, why did the master give five to one guy and two to another and one to another? That's not fair. Why did he do it? Did you see what it said in the passage? It says that he gave according to their ability. What happens to a one-talent guy if you give him five talents? Oh, you sink him. What happens to your 10-year-old if you let her drive the car? You can't, give them, uh, ab- you can't give them opportunities beyond their ability. Now, I'll be the first to say, every single one of my kids have driven the car sitting on my lap, and, and they, they do this, and they think that they're driving. They don't understand. There's like a whole lot going on underneath, down by my feet, that really is important to the process of driving. They can't even reach the pedals, but they think they're driving because they've got the wheel. You know, it's according to their ability. And here's the thing that's really important for us to understand. Again, while God gives to every person, believer or not, a portion of his goods, just like this master gives to his servants, people who are not followers of God don't understand the responsibility of stewardship. They just think, hey, this is me. These are my abilities. Pulling myself by my own bootstraps, and I'm going to get what's mine while I can. But stewards understand something different. Stewards don't own anything. Rather, they manage what someone else owns. Stewards don't own 
but manage what another owns. They understand that God has loaned things to us to use during our lifetime. And listen, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't have anything that God hasn't given to me. Not a thing. And if you would be honest with yourself too, and just think deeply for a second, there is nothing that you have that God hasn't given to you too. Isn't that a humbling thing to think about? Nothing of our own. Now, it's, it's important for us because I think the way that this parable has been used, because it's dealing with money, to think that stewardship is primarily and maybe even solely or exclusively about money. And this is an important stewardship category. But listen, there's a lot of other things that we have to steward as well. I, I, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but chasing a rabbit trail here for a little bit. Why is the stewardship of our money important? Very simply, because um, God owns all of it. I guess he wanted to get your attention right before he said that. So uh, that's why the buzz is there. He, wants, he, he owns it all. And uh, here's the challenge that I see sometimes in church life. Um, I, I, uh, I, I believe the scriptures, and I, I don't deny for a second that tithing is a biblical category. The challenge is the word tithe is used in the Old Testament. It's not used in the New Testament in the same way. So I think that tithing is an Old Testament concept. However, I would not want to do under grace less than was required of me by law. Okay, does that make sense? This is yes, this is no, this is I've fallen asleep. Um, um, I don't want to do less under grace than I was required to by law. So for me... The tithe is not in operation in a New Testament church. It's the principle of sacrificial giving. Now, let me tell you why that's so important. I have all kinds of friends, pastors, parents, grandparents, all kinds of folks that their, their goal in life was to be a tither. The problem is once you get to 10%, you have nowhere else to grow, right? Because like that is the ceiling. 10% and I'm done. The challenge is God isn't just concerned about your 10%. He's concerned about the whole thing. Believe it or not, and this is going to sound terribly invasive, God is concerned about what you spend your money on. He's concerned about whether you save money. The Bible says it's wise to save for the future. It says a, a, a wise man gives an inheritance to his children's children. So if you think you're setting your kids up, great. Great, you're about halfway to what the Bible says you should be doing. You should be giving a blessing to your children's children. And so the challenge is, if you're a tithe person, then the 10% is the ceiling. If you're a sacrificial giving person, 10% is the basement. You want to grow beyond that. And um, I find a lot of people who, uh, they trust God to, that they can, live it, they, can, they can make a living on 90%. But I think it takes a little bit more faith to trust God for 80% or 75%, to learn how to be dependent upon it too. Another reason why financial stewardship is, is so important, there are 300,000 churches in the United States. If every um, person who called themselves a Christian that was a member of those 300,000 church, 300, churches would but tithe, not even sacrificially give, if they would tithe, you know how long it would take us to wipe out hunger? One week. American Christianity could wipe out world hunger today. The money would be in the bank today if everyone who named the name of Christ in the United States would, would, would get to whatever you want to call it, the ceiling or the basement. If they would get there, world hunger would be gone. 
That, that blows my mind that we see crazy things happening in our world, uh, natural disasters, um, all kinds of crazy stuff, and we have the ability by ourselves. We don't even need another country to come alongside us. We have enough wealth that we, if we took God seriously, would be able to bless the world in incredible ways. But the talent's not just money. I've heard it said that a talent is anything whereby you can glorify God. So let me ask you this. Can you glorify God with your time? Absolutely. Um, your health, is your health a gift from God? You better believe it. You don't know it until you don't have it. And then you realize how much you have taken it for granted. Your health is a gift that you can use your health for the glory of God. Listen, there, there are men in my church who um, were, were, would, would, would be faithful at helping to do hospital visits, and they can't do it anymore because they're not healthy enough or they're not mobile enough. And it breaks their heart that they didn't do more while they could because now their mobility is limited and they understood that their health was a talent that they could use to glorify God. You have abilities, you have knowledge, you have spiritual gifts, you have smarts, you have time, you have all kinds of things that you can use to glorify God. What's interesting to me here in this passage is that the master doesn't give a whole lot of instruction, does he? Five for you, two for you, one for you. And then it says the master leaves. And I don't think, I, like, I, I don't know about you, I would like some instructions. Like, my wife didn't tell me how long the garlic bread needed to cook last night. It came out extra crispy. Um, but that, 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 that's good stuff. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't have instructions exactly on what I needed to do. Either that or I didn't read the box. I think that was probably more the problem. I just kind of put it in. Yeah, 700 degrees for 20 minutes. That'll do it. So, um, yeah, charcoal. Um, I would like instructions. I would like a manual. And the master doesn't do that. He just says, Here, here's, here's money. And we don't know what he, we, we don't know everything that was said. But I think the master was wise enough to not tie them down with a bunch of road instructions because an earthly master didn't know all the circumstances that these servants would face. He just knew that he was trusting them to do the right thing. He leaves it to their initiative and stewards have the ability to use someone else's stuff like it's their very own. That's a crazy thing, isn't it? It's not my hundred years of income you've just given me, but I'm going to use it like my own. And, and, and what, what I want to do, I would want to see, I, I would want to bless you, I'd bless others, bless you, and see it, see it increase. So no instructions, they used it as their own, and they had the opportunity to exercise initiative without being tied to some kind of rule book. And that brings us to our second point, which I think is very important too, that how we work demonstrates both our character and our affection. We don't think about it like that, but it's true. We just think, man, I punched in, I punched out. You know, did my, did my work today? But the truth is how you do the work. And here, they have work to do while the master's gone. We don't know how long the master's gone. Could have been three months, could have been three years. It just says it was a long time. But they work in such a way to demonstrate their character and their affection. Look at verses 16 through 25. Scriptures say this, He who had received the five talents... Want at once, and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Uh, it's pretty amazing. If uh, a talent is 20 years worth of uh, salary, and he's got five talents, and the master is referring to that as a little amount. Talk about Mr. Moneybags here. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. How does their work demonstrate their character and their affection? Well, in a variety of ways. The first two servants make it very clear that they are uh, overjoyed to work for the master. It says that uh, the word that they use is that as soon as the master left, they immediately went out and started putting the talents that they had to work. And they um, didn't express any sense of coercion or unhappiness. Now, any of you, do any of you work with unhappy people? I can hear the snickers already. Isn't that like par for the course? You know, now if you work with your family, please don't answer that question. Um, that would be bad. Um, but th- there, it just seems like people want to complain about work all the time. And yet these people consider it a delight to work for the master. There's no coercion. There's no unhappiness. What you see is hard work. And what ends up happening is they make 100% profit. Servant number one. Servant number two. Verse 18 starts with an adversative. But. So servant number one goes out, works hard, doubles the money. Servant number two goes out, works hard, doubles the money. Verse 18. But the third guy... He don't want to work. So he takes it and he buries it in the ground to keep it safe. That's the contrast. One and two, work hard. Number three, he's not criticized for his form of safekeeping. I mean, every single one of you, when you were a kid, you made a pirate map with X marks the spot. It was the way you kept things safe. There were not banks. There were not safety deposit boxes. You buried it in the ground where only you knew where it was. The rebuke that's kind of coming here is not for his mode of safekeeping, which was very common. It was the, what's that old statement? Nothing ventured, nothing gained. He, he was unwilling to work. He made a commitment to do nothing, to engage in no work. And as we will see, that willingness to not do anything for the master is a damning commitment. What's crazy to me is that, no instructions, but there is at least some kind of implicit understanding that the master's livelihood rests upon the servants that he just gave all this stuff to. Like, the amount of trust that is involved there is radically kind of, kind of crazy. And so I don't know that we can, we can fully understand how much the master's desire is completely contingent and dependent upon the work of the servants. So, Here's the deal. I got uh, a text message this morning. John Bennett went to India. 7.30, he landed at JFK, uh, the land of the free, home of the brave, and Big Macs. And so um, 
I'm sure he's going to be interested in some beef now that he's home. So um, that's a great thing. So let's say, you know, there's some great things that happen over in India. And uh, church says, God says, hey, Scott, we need you to go over there for like six months to follow up on the work. Well, I got a a family. And they kind of depend upon me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go talk to Isaac Brown. Isaac. Oh, did I wake you up? I'm sorry. <laughs> Isaac, here's what, here's what needs to happen, man. My, um, my, my wife, man, she's, she's great. I need you, you kind of hold down the fort for me. And my, my boys, um, listen, um, I can't keep pants on them. Like, like within two weeks, they're like grown out of them, and they, there's holes in their shoes, and like they come home, and even if it's brand new pants, like they don't last for like more than two days because the minute they come home from school, we're playing football and there's grass stains all over them. Oops, there's a hole in the knee. Um, and let me tell you, man, they're starting to eat. I mean, they look skinny, but it's deceptive. I mean, they can, they can put it away. They, they use shovels for spoons. I don't know where it goes. I'm filling up the legs. I don't know, they're hiding it somewhere. And um, Isaac, I just, if my family's going to have clothes and they're going to eat, you're going to have to do it. Isaac, what would happen if I did that to you? My family would starve and my boys would be naked. Um, that, that's pretty much what would happen. <laughs> you know, or they're, they're, they would be wearing the same pants they wore when I left, except they would look like shorts. You know, they would be like the most extreme high waters you have ever seen. And that's the idea is like, you, you think about putting something completely and totally on someone else and realize like, my family's in trouble if I'm not there. I mean, Marcy's very capable, but this is a partnership for us. Like, uh, she went away for a weekend. It, it was, we survived. It was not fun, but we survived, you know. We had fun, but uh, it was a challenge, kind of do this on your, by yourself. It'd be a challenge for her to do it without me. And so, in the same sense that I go, all right, Isaac, I'm going to put all this on you. That's exactly what God has done with the, with the servants. The, the happiness of the servant's servanthood is demonstrated when accountability time shows up. All right? Um, some of you think that accountability is a four-letter word. A-C-C-O-U. It's much more than, than four letters. And uh, master shows up and says, all right, it's time to settle accounts. And in servant number one and servant number two, what's going on? They're like, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. Let me go first. Show and tell. Let me go first. I can't wait. And the way that the, the language works out is it, it doesn't sound, it sounds like Yoda. It doesn't sound like English. <clears throat> it, it, it starts off with an idu. Behold, look, exclamation mark, look, five, you gave me. Five more, I give back to you. That's excitement. There's a glint in the eyes. There's a like, blabbering ready to talk about. I mean, you're not gonna believe what God did. You gave me five talents and like, I didn't even take a class. I don't even know who Dave Ramsey is. I made five talents more. Then number two is like, I did just as well. Like, it's not the same amount, but like, I doubled what you gave me. There's this, this happiness, this, this expression in the eyes and this, this just willingness to, to blabber excitedly about, you trusted me with this. Look what I was able to do. What's amazing is both receive identical praise from the master. They're told four things. They said, well done. Good job. And then they're 
not only is their work complimented, but they are complimented. Well done, good and faithful servant. Then they're promoted. You were faithful over little. I'll put you over much. And then they're welcomed in. Enter into the joy of your master. It is almost a formula, and it's applied both to the first and to the second. And I love what this episode demonstrates. It demonstrates the fact that saving faith is serving faith. Now, it's real easy to write down on your bulletin. It's a different thing to live out. And let me just, let me let you in on a little secret that is the heartache of every pastor that I know of. There are far more people on the rolls of our churches that claim to have saving faith that express, oh, so very little serving faith. I don't know if I'm crazy, because listen, I work with church people all week long, so I know that makes me weird, but it's y'all's fault. Um, It's hanging out with y'all, it does this to me. Um, You can't, in the United States, claim privately whatever you want to claim. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. What you claim to profess and what you actually possess, two completely different things. And the Bible says that saving faith is serving faith. So here's, here's the challenge for me, and I say this not to be mean-spirited, but if you say you're a Christian, that means that you are claiming that Jesus is the Lord of your life. He is the king, he sits on the throne, he makes the decisions that you make, or you make the decisions that he wants you to make. And if Jesus is who the Bible claimed he is, he is God himself, which means he created everything, he's tremendously powerful, and yet you don't even allow him to rearrange the furniture in your home? Come on, man. You're going to claim to have saving faith without a serving faith that even tries. Do it badly, but try to line your life up with what the Bible says. Like, I do it and I mess up all the time. And that's okay, because I'm making progress. I don't get it right, but I want to. And I just think, in in this day and age, if, if we could just tell everyone, listen, let's call it something else. Let's call it something else. Whatever, whatever you are that wants to claim faith, but doesn't actually, like, you don't take it seriously at all. Let's call it something else. Because the problem is, when you call it Christianity, you make everyone who's trying to live right look like hypocrites because of the way that you live. Now, ultimately we are. I believe better than I live. And, and I bet that that's true for every single one of you too. But there's grace and there's forgiveness, and there's repentance, and there's God strengthen me to do better. Help me not to fall prey to the same thing. This demonstrates that there should be a happiness. We, we don't serve God like, bruh, 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 got to do it, taking out the trash, picking up after the dog. No, there's, there's joy in serving the Lord. And what's awesome here is not just what we get to do, but the Lord's response. He demonstrates very clearly. He's not interested in fame or fortune. He rewards his servants based upon faithfulness. Faithfulness. Listen, five talents or ten talents and four talents, not the same. But it's the same effort. It's the same intentionality. It's the same motive. And then you've got the third servant who, when it comes to accountability time, implies that it's the master's fault that he did nothing. This guy's not even willing to own up to his own inactivity. He's like, oh, I knew you were a hard man. And the master doesn't even buy it. He says, 
So you thought I was a hard man? Well, then you probably should have done, at least put it in the bank and get interest. You know, if I'm a hard man, what a, what a, what a completely invalid answer if you really actually truly believe this about me. And this leads to our third point. How we work will result in either reward or rebuke. Verses 26 through 30. Either reward or rebuke. The master answered the third servant, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Really? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I could have received what is mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has... More will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ultimately, the, the interpretation of this section of scriptures, <clears throat> the challenge is if this is about financial stewardship, and all three servants are believers, then what do you do with a third servant? doesn't sound like what happens to a believer. Uh, ultimately, I think you're talking about not just financial stewardship, it's, it's, it's stewarding what God has entrusted to you. And people who care about stewardship are the ones who follow God. A person who don't, doesn't, they, they don't because they don't really acknowledge God as the master at all. And that's why the third servant is a picture of a non-believer who says, yeah, hey, you gave me all this stuff, big deal, I don't really care, I'm going to do what I want to do. The Bible says that there is a reckoning that is coming. What's, what's interesting is that the reward for poor work is that you lose what you have. The reward for good work is what? More work. It's like my, my kids with chores. I'm like, oh boy, you got done fast. Let me give you another. Wait, wait, that's not how it's supposed to work. You tricked me. Yes, that's why we're the parents. We're super smart and you're not. You know, we, well, of course we, we, we do that. Now, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over little. I'll put you over much. Take the talent away from the servant who had one and give it to the one who had ten. The reward for good work is more work. And we have to remember that what this episode teaches us is that having little is no excuse for inactivity. Having little is no excuse for an activity. Our judgment is not based on the increase or based upon the amount. It's based on faithfulness. What do you do with what you have received? Not the amount. The, the, the guy that doubled two into four got the same reward that the guy that doubled five into ten. Now, let me tell you, there's a world of difference between the ten-talent guy and the four-talent guy from a monetary perspective. They both get the same commendation. So I want to conclude in the last few minutes that we have by asking you a question. And the question is this. What is the greatest talent that you have received? And please don't anybody say the mouth harp. Um, like, that's not what we're looking for. You know, we're not looking for the... You know, man, I can play, I can play the knee bone, the hand bone, you know. We're not talking about those kind of talents. What is the most significant talent that God has given you? there's a couple verses I'm going to throw at you here in conclusion. 1 Peter 4.10 says that as each of you have received a special gift from God, employ it in serving one another. That's talking about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are definitely a, a talent. 
Uh, and I don't mean talent like talent show. I mean talent like uh, something that the master has entrusted you to use for his glory. You can use, spirit, you can use spiritual gifts to puff yourself up, or you can use spiritual gifts for the, the benefit of others. Uh, a spiritual gift is definitely a talent, but I don't think that that is the most significant talent that you or I have received. I don't. The greatest talent that I have is the same greatest talent that you have. You know, we talk, even here, we talk about um, investing our time, talent, and treasure. Okay, so are we talking about any kind of investment of time, talent, and treasure? No. There are some ways that you invest your time that that's not good. There are some ways that you invest your treasure that we wouldn't approve of. There are some ways you invest your talent that's not good. So when we say investing your time, talent, and treasure, what is the plumb line, the measurement for figuring out whether our investing of time, talent, and treasure is commendable or not? It is the gospel. And it drives me nuts because I couldn't find anybody that said the talent that God has entrusted to everyone is the gospel. And whether you do something with it or don't proves that you're a believer or not. That's why guy number three gets everything taken away. He goes to a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's why the reward for good work is more work. If you share the gospel, guess what your reward is? Do it again. And when you do it again, and you're good at sharing the gospel, guess what your reward is now? Do it some more. The talent is not where you're really good at making money. The talent is not even if you're a really good Sunday school teacher, though you can use those things for the glory of God. But using it for the glory of God means chaining it to the gospel. So listen, sponsor your kid in, you know, the nation of Farquhar. But make sure that you're using your money for gospel purposes. Listen to these verses. 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul says this, This is how you should regard us. Now Paul's talking about his apostolic delegation, but I think it's really easy to extend it to the rest of us. This is how you should think about us. Servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You'll see it on the screen here. 1 Corinthians 4.1. We are servants of Christ and, what's that word? Stewards. What are we stewarding? The mysteries of God. What in the world are the mysteries of God? Don't get ahead of me. Hold your horses. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says this, What you have heard from me. And he's not talking about gossip. He's not talking about gladiator games. Uh, he's not talking about, you know, news, weather, and sports. What you've heard from me. The gospel. The teaching about Christ. What you've heard from me. And the presence of many witnesses. Entrust. What's that word, entrust? It's an issue of stewardship. Entrust the gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Your job is to take what you know and give it to someone else who understands that their job is to give it to someone else. Who's the, who their job is to give it to someone else. And their job is to give it to someone else. Pay it forward with the gospel. Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 28 says this. Paul again. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for generations, but now revealed to his saints. God chose to make known how great 
are the riches of the glory of this mystery. He says it twice. What is this mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. That's the thing that we are to steward. That's the thing that we are entrusted with. Friends, what do you have that is more precious than the gospel? The gospel is so important that the gospel is the plumb line that determines whether you're investing your time well or not well. The gospel is what determines whether you're using your money well or not well. The gospel is what determines whether you're using your talents well or not well. And so the question becomes, what's the greatest talent you've received? It's the gospel. And when that day of reckoning comes, are you stuck with your one talent? What will you have to give back to the master that loved you enough and trusted you enough to make his gospel mission fully dependent upon you and me? And, and we are the Isaac Browns trying to take care of a family. God's entrusted us to us. When it comes to the way that you support gospel ministry, by your attendance, by your participation, by your personal financial contribution. Are you going to stand before the Lord and be proud of how you've invested your time, talents, and treasure? I want to ask this question, and I don't. If I said, how many of you have made a commitment to have a gospel conversation with someone this year? How many people would raise their hand? We can, we can better our performance. We can take a teaching seminar. We can, learn, we can learn Dave Ramsey's principles for managing our money better, and we completely miss out on stewarding the gospel, which, let me tell you, is the most important talent that God has entrusted to you. The question is whether you're going to be a ten-talent, a four-talent or a one-talent guy. I had the opportunity when I was seven years old. Um, seven years old is young. I didn't fully understand everything, but at seven, I trust in the Lord. And here, at, uh, at 44 years old, I have never regretted working for the Master. It's not always been easy. Um, it's not always been productive. There have probably been a few one-talent years in there. But there have been some four talents, some ten talent years. That I'm just amazed at what God does with people who are faithful. It's not an issue of your ability. It's an, it's an issue of God's blessing. And um, I, I would say to you, this, this whole idea of stewardship and stewarding the gospel is, is an issue of where do you put your deepest trust? And, and I know for some of you, uh, church has been somewhat of a game or a tradition. It hasn't really impacted how you live and the decisions that you make. The challenge with that is you're really, in one sense, outside of the hour that you're in church on Sunday morning, no different than a world that doesn't know Christ. And the gospel is so important that it becomes that principle by which everything else in your life is evaluated. It becomes the foundation. It becomes the bullseye. It becomes the the most essential thing. And I would say to you, um, it's not a faint-hearted, it's not a hasty decision. The Bible says you're supposed to count the cost. I don't know how many verses of a song we'd need to sing 
to be able to talk to you about everything that you need to know to make a, an informed decision about following the Lord. But if you're in a position where you know you've not been obedient, like you're afraid that you're the third talent, you're, you're the third servant, or you're not even servant at all, you know, because you assume God hadn't given you everything, everything you've got is your own. If that's a question that you need to have, the Bible says that God gives us time to repent, but that there's a time coming where that opportunity will be gone. The challenge for you would be to be cognizant enough of what's happening in your heart and the conviction that you're feeling in your spirit to act upon it, because if you don't, you won't feel it next week. The Bible calls it hard in your heart. And so as our service concludes, uh, our band's going to come up and we're going to sing, we're going to pray, and we're going to dismiss. If that's a conversation that you need to have, uh, just know, lunch will wait. You'll be all right. I'll be all right. Um, We need to talk and we need to pray. And we need to find out what's going on with you and how our church can help you. Would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Father, help us not to confuse categories and to think that our talents and skills and abilities are more important or more precious than your gospel. Father, even for us as believers, I think the tendency is for us to minimize the gospel and not to see it as the chief most thing by which you have blessed us and, and the most important thing with which you have entrusted us. Yes, our families, our gifts. But Father, if we don't steward the gospel in our families, uh, then we're, we're, we're not taking care of our responsibilities well. Our greatest desire is to see um, Christians faithfully serving our great and glorious God. To warn faithfully and with love those who are not serving you. Uh, those who maybe don't really have a frame of reference for who you are, the obligations that they owe to you. Father, I pray today that your spirit will work as we sing uh, this song of praise to you, thanking you for your blood that was shed, for the forgiveness of our sins, that you would help us to serve you with eagerness, gladness, and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.